This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture this morning is going to come from Luke Luke chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Luke 6, 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this day that has been set aside for us to Uh, to rest in you. We thank you for this day that you have set aside for us to worship you and to look specifically and intently at your word, to gather together and to be shaped by you. Lord, it's such a privilege that we get to do this. It's a privilege that we know that this is what we're going to do as your people for eternity, that we will get to worship you and spend time with you in your presence, learning of you and growing in the knowledge of you. And we have this opportunity as a precursor to that, as a taste of that. So Lord, help us to recognize just what a privilege it is to be gathered together as your people. And Lord, also knowing that at the same time we're gathered with so many churches around around the country and around the world who are gathering to worship you, we pray specifically for those. We pray for those other gospel-preaching churches in this area. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be preached uh, across Michigan, across this country, across the world, uh, and that we would be grown as your people. But Lord, we also recognize that there's this body that that you've called together, that you've put us together as a family, and we recognize that in that family, in that body, there are those who are hurting, there are those who are grieving, there are those who are struggling, so we pray that you would give comfort and that you would give peace in the midst of those struggles. Lord, whether it's through illness whether it's through continuing to grieve the loss of loved ones or uh, the death that we have to face because we're still part of this fallen world. Lord, we know that you are faithful to comfort your people, faithful to walk through us with all of those situations, no matter how difficult they are. So we turn to you and ask for your help. And Lord, we ask these things knowing that you're faithful to do them. You've said that you would do them. You've said that you would be with us, that you wouldn't leave us or forsake us. So we ask you, knowing already that you are faithful to do as you've promised. 
And Lord, as we're gathered here together this morning to, to be shaped by your word, to, uh, to grow, to learn, to be your church, we pray that just that would happen. That as the word is preached, that we would hear it, that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts, and that we would be shaped as individuals and as a corporate body together to be what you've called us to be. Lord, we pray that you would convict us of sin that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, that you would remind us of the grace that has been shown to us in Christ, and that we would leave here this morning uh, grown and encouraged and joyful because we know who you are and who we are in you. So again, we pray for Pastor Aaron that he would preach those words that you have planned for him to preach and that we would be glorifying you in all that's said and done here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, First Press. Glad to be with you. If you have your copy of God's Word, I just ask that it would be open there to Luke chapter 6. You know, one of the things that's funny about life is we learn to do things a certain way, and you begin to do them, and sometimes you don't know why or how it got to be that you did things the way you do them. Maybe you've heard the story of a little girl who asked her mom as she was watching her cook dinner. She said, Mommy, why do you cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? The girl's mother told her what she thought. She said, Well, I I think it adds flavor by allowing the meat to better absorb the spices. But perhaps you should ask your grandmother since she always did it that way. So a little girl finds her grandmother and she asks, Grandma, Why do you and mommy cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? And grandma thought for a moment, and she answered, I think it allows the meat to stay tender because it soaks up the juices better, but why don't you go ask your nana? After all, I learned it from her, and she always did it that way. The little girl was getting a little frustrated, and she found finally her great-grandmother, and she climbed into her lap, and she said, Nana, why do you cut the ends of the meat off before you cook it? Nana answered, I don't know why these women do it, but I did it because my pot wasn't big enough. (laughs) Isn't that the truth, that that traditions, they can be powerful, but they're not always necessary or even good, right? Especially when they don't match up to God's word, as we see in our text. I draw your attention to verse 2, actually, of chapter 6. And I draw your attention to the reaction of the Pharisees to something they saw Jesus doing. I want you to notice their statement. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? They're making a pretty stark claim there, aren't they? They're assuming that what Jesus is doing is sinful. So what was it specifically Jesus was doing? Go back to verse 1. It says, on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain field, plucking and eating the grain. Now, our mind in the 21st century would be, well, sure, it's always wrong to steal. But guess what? Jesus and his disciples, I want to assure you, were not stealing. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, there was a rule that allowed individuals to walk through the fields and to use their hands to, to take the grain that they needed for their own sustenance. And so it wasn't stealing. They, they wouldn't be allowed, according to Deuteronomy law, to take a sickle and begin harvesting someone else's field, but they surely could take what they needed for their own benefit, for their own food. And so we see that they weren't stealing. So we're left to ask the question, what was the issue that the Pharisees had? It was the issue that the Pharisees thought that 
Jesus and his disciples were not keeping the Sabbath properly. See, the the Pharisees saw what Jesus was doing as violating the Sabbath law. They saw this as sinful. Now, a couple things that we need to know about the, the Sabbath law, because many of us really don't have any context to understand it, is we need to go back to the uh, Ten Commandments. Now, one of the things we understand about the Ten Commandments as evangelical Christians is that they are God's commands for all people. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, we are given the details of what is known as the Fourth Commandment, or the commandment regarding the Sabbath. We're told there that it was connected to God's created order. Listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that was in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. God took one day in seven and he set it up as a structure for mankind. It was one day that was given for man to rest. And we need to understand something. This rule wasn't for a particular people in a particular time. This was part of the creation order. It is a universal order. The truth of this commandment is seen in our own lives. We can see it as people burn out. They become workaholics and ultimately their lives start to deteriorate. We've seen countries that have literally tried to extend the work week to an eight or even ten day work week. And all they do is exasperate their people. We are made in God's image, and therefore we understand that God knows best what we need. So in the created order, God gave us a place for rest. Friends, understand this. Even the land needs rest. Farmers will tell you that. You can overwork the land. But understand this, that that the law or the rule for the Sabbath isn't just found in Exodus regarding the creation order. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, which repeats the Ten Commandments, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, it gets to the fourth commandment, but he tells us there that this commandment, this idea of Sabbath rest, is rooted in God's people's redemption. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 5, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to remind them that they're not slaves anymore. That they are entitled to rest in Christ. What a beautiful thing the Sabbath is. It's for our own benefit. For own enrichment, it's also a time to reflect and remember the redemption of God. Now, in the New Testament, we understand that the Lord's Day, the Sunday, is the day the church gathers in reflection of the resurrection of Christ. And we gather to rest and assemble and remember the redemption that is given to us. But friends, that's not the problem the Pharisees had. See, the problem the Pharisees had with Jesus was that he wasn't doing what they expected. They said, basically, Jesus is breaking the rules. He's not doing what we expect. He's doing something that's unlawful, something that wasn't based upon man's understanding, man's adding, man's tradition. Fill it in the blank. 
What they're actually referring to is the Mishnah. The Mishnah was the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions. And so what they're upset with Jesus for doing is breaking the Mishnah's law, the commentary that the Pharisees had for how the law should be obeyed. See, the Pharisees understood the law could be obeyed. They believed that you could actually do things to earn your own righteousness. And so therefore, they looked at the law and they wrestled with it and they started to come up with rules that say, okay, this is acceptable, this isn't. In the Mishnah, hear this, there were some 39 kinds of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. 39 kinds! They're sitting around debating which is acceptable and which is unacceptable. And this is what they're upset with Jesus for. He's not following the traditions of men. See, the problem was the Pharisees were putting their tradition before God's law. They were more concerned about man-made rules than they were the very word of God. Church, we all know this. Those of us who've been in church for any amount of time, we know how easy it is for us to be held to the standards of men rather than the standard of God. Can I get an amen to that? We know it. It's very easy for people to start to constrain us by their traditions, by their expectations, rather than the standard of God's word. Yet if we're honest, how easy it is for us to begin to hold others to our standards rather than God's standard. See, very quickly, we can turn this and realize we ourselves are not only affected by the traditions of others, we can start to push our traditions on others. And this is dangerous. As we'll see, Jesus points out the problem as you look at verses 3 through 5. Notice verse 3, Jesus says, Have you not read... Have you not read? Notice what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is pointing them back to the word of God. Jesus isn't debating with them about different traditions. And he says, well, my, my understanding of the... No, he gets back to the word of God. Have you not read? Jesus goes to the word of God and he deals with it what it specifically says. Understand this, church. The standard for Christ was and is today the very word of God. The standard for Christ is not man's opinion. The question before all of us is, are we setting our standard by God's word or by man's opinion? Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus reminds them of a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Jesus says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Now, he brings David up because David's kind of an important figure, especially for the Jews. King David is one who's known to be a man after God's own heart. David's a big deal. So he lifts David up and he says, haven't you read what David did? He's kind of slapping them in the face with God's word, specifically 1 Samuel 21. He says in this, in verses 3 and 4, how he entered the house of God. He took and he ate the bread of presence, which was not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat, and how also he gave it to those who were with him. 
Do you see what he's doing here? Jesus is saying, you're making a big deal about what I'm doing, and you don't even know what the scripture says about David, your hero. He begins to work this out. He says, let me point a couple things out. David entered the house of the Lord, and he ate the holy bread. And David didn't do this alone. David actually gave this to others. Then Jesus comes to his key point, verse 5. Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, that's an encouraging word. That's a word of hope because if you know anything about Jesus, you know his heart for his sheep. You know his love for his people. And one of the things that Jesus wants to make clear to all of those who were gathered in his hearing was this. You don't need to be concerned about the rules of others. You need to be concerned about the word of God. And guess what? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the creator of the Sabbath. I'm the enforcer of the Sabbath. I understand the Sabbath better than anyone else. When he uses that phrase, I'm the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath, that phrase is bringing together two ideas. It's the idea of the appointed one, the promised one, the long-awaited son of man, attached to the ancient of days. And he puts them together and he's saying, I am the God-man. Do you know who I am and the authority I have? He's saying, I am greater than David. I am greater than David. I am the promised one. I am God. I'm in charge. I know what the Sabbath is and what it was given for. And I surely know how it is to be lawfully used because I created it and I rule over it. Jesus makes this point very clearly. He says, if you listen to David, you surely will listen to me. For I am doing what the word of God describes. Church, I come back to us and I ask this question. Is God's word our standard? I come back to that because that's really the wrestling match. For many of us, we're not letting the word of God be the standard. We're letting man determine how we live. We're allowing others to push in, and we're allowing them to be our ruler and authority when Christ says, I'm the ruler. I'm the one who came to save you. I bought you with my precious blood. I have redeemed you. You are mine, and the Sabbath is my gift to you. We see why this is a big deal. We see the the ultimate forces as they line up, the armies, if you will, in the field of battle, the tradition of the Pharisees, but the love of Christ, the true Son of Man. Church, I draw your attention here to what Luke does. Luke begins in verse 6, and he jumps to another occasion of a Sabbath. Now, as a reader of this text, I have to ask the question, why did Luke take another story that maybe didn't happen uh, in exactly the same time sequence and place it where he did? I believe this is the reason. For Luke, he understood that Jesus made a very important point, and now he wanted to illustrate it. He wanted the church to understand and see what it means that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Luke writes this, verse 6, On another Sabbath, 
he entered the synagogue and was teaching. I would just make a note there that this was Jesus' tradition to go into the synagogue and teach. If you've been walking with us through Luke, you see this rhythm in Jesus' life. And so here we're told that Jesus enters the synagogue, he's teaching, and it says, And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. See how the battle, the lines are drawn in this situation? You see why why Luke places it right where he does? To, To really help you understand the weight of the battle that's enraged right here and right now regarding Christ versus the traditions of men. Friends, I draw your attention specifically to the man who's described with the deformity. We're told that his right hand was deformed. Now, we would understand this to be a result of the fallen world we live in, where sickness and deformity and, yes, even death seem to reign all around us. There's sickness, there's pain, there's suffering, and there's death. And so right before everyone is this reminder that they're living in a fallen world. Right before everyone, they can see demonstrated before them the fallen world in which they live. And all the Pharisees can do is look to Jesus to see, will he heal him? Can we accuse him? Have we got him? See how much they love their traditions more than they care for people? Isn't it true that oftentimes when you look about trying to go around and be a people pleaser, you're carrying the weight of everyone and ultimately being stifled under it? They don't care for you. They care about their traditions. They care about their ways. So there they are watching Jesus to see what they would do. And verse 8 is beautiful. It says, Jesus knew their wicked hearts. Praise God. We have a Savior who knows our wickedness, and yet he came to save us. And he knew their wickedness, and he would expose it. Look at what he does here in verse 8. He calls the man and says, stand here. Friends, for just a moment, I want to leave you in the tension of of that synagogue in that day in the first century. I want you to understand that there were party lines, that people were beginning to feel the tension in the room. Who do we follow? Who do we believe? What are we going to happen right now? What's going to happen? The tension was thick. What would Jesus do? And Jesus, in his own way, he does what he always does. He asks a question. Look at verse 9. It says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? to save life, or to destroy it. Isn't it interesting what Jesus does there? Jesus asks a question. He almost, in a sense, takes the tension in the room to a whole other level. You know, he, he takes it all the way up and says, let's really push the throttle. Let's really go there. Let's really make everybody feel the heat for a moment. As he does that, you can imagine, what will the Pharisees say? How will they respond? Good teachers of the law should know God's desire isn't just sacrifice. He desires hearts, hearts of of grace and mercy, hearts of love. What will the Pharisees do? So again, Jesus makes his point. He asks that question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? What's ironic is that Jesus is going to be repeatedly dealing with the same problem with these same types of Pharisees, these scribes, 
these teachers of the law. In Luke chapter 14, verse 5, Jesus is dealing with the exact same issue. And listen to the question he asks there. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath, will not immediately pull him out? He's saying, which of you who have a son who falls into a pit, even though it's the Sabbath, wouldn't go in and get him? And for that matter, which of you, if you had an animal that fell into a pit, wouldn't go in to get him on the Sabbath? Which of you would not do good on the Sabbath? That's the question. That's the question Jesus is asking in the synagogue that day. Which of you should we not do good? Should we not save life? Should we do harm on the Sabbath? Should we destroy life? I love verse 10. Because as they were watching Jesus, guess what? Jesus was watching them. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus' eye was fixed on them. How will you answer? You can imagine the silence, the tension. None of us like silence, right? In my house, if there's silence, my middle child fills it. She does not like silence. But the truth is, most of us are like that. We're uncomfortable in the silence. In the text, Jesus just looks. Everyone's uncomfortable. See, here's the point. It's always right to do the right thing. And I'm going to add to that. It's always the right time to do the right thing. And that was Jesus' point. And so what Jesus does in that moment, he calls the man and he says, stretch out your hand just as God stretched out his hand to save them, he tells the man, stretch out your hand, and his hand was restored. His hand was brought back to its correct position. His hand was redeemed. Church, don't miss this. This is a picture of God's redemption in us through Jesus Christ. That Christ restores us back to our proper condition of holiness. Back pre-fall. In fact, it's better than pre-fall because we have the righteousness of Christ that we're clothed in. Jesus is ultimately saying here to the people, the Sabbath was made for good. The Sabbath is a time of rest. The Sabbath is a day to remember our redemption. Ultimately, we should therefore seek to impart grace to others because of our redemption. Do you see that? See, church, the question before us is, are we living as though it's always the right time to do the right thing? Is that the way we're living our lives? as though it's always the right time to do the right thing. We should be, especially as redeemed people. We should always be seeking the moment to do the right thing. Because God's word is our standard. It's our desire to please him, to bring glory to his name, because he has redeemed us. And he's given the blessing of a day in which we remember our redemption. Why would we not want to do good? 
Why would we not want to dispense grace to others? But sadly, look at the response of the Pharisees. Verse 11 says they're filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're filled with fury. Rather than realign their views with God's word, they got angry at Jesus. Friends, how often this is the case as people get angry with God's word, what it says. And so what they do is they get angry at God. They get angry at the church. They get angry at the preacher. They get angry at the Christian. They get angry at the Bible. We should expect difficulty as the church. And we should understand that in this culture where people have to choose the word of God or culture, there's going to be tension. The lines are drawn. It's not going to be comfortable. The battle is real. The question is, what side are we on? It will always be difficult to hold up Scripture as the standard in a culture that does not care about the Word of God but prefers their traditions. It's going to be difficult in churches that prefer their traditions over the Word of God. And so we see the Pharisees discussed, how can we get Jesus out of the way? See, rather than realign themselves to God's word, they would rather remove Jesus. Friends, isn't that what the story of Tom Jefferson is? That he sat and read the Bible in those areas that he just could not accept. He just grabbed his scissors and started cutting. And we laugh about that. We think, what a, what a goofy thing to do to cut up the, the Bible. But sadly, we do the same thing in our hearts. When we ignore portions of Scripture we don't like. When ultimately the Bible doesn't start to align with culture and it becomes uncomfortable, so we just begin to buckle under culture's tradition and wait. You know, as I was preparing to preach this, one of the things that kept coming back to me is how different the ending could have been. I know the beginning is, it was, it was destined to happen, right? Because as you look at the beginning, you realize that ultimately this is an opportunity for God to flex and show his purpose. And, and man is sinful, and man, man is always going to wrestle against God. But the question is, how different it could have been if after hearing Jesus' point, the Pharisees would have just repented. If they would have said, you know what, we never thought about the David aspect. You know what? Everything you've been saying and doing does kind of match up with the Old Testament, so maybe you really are the Son of Man. Could you imagine how different it could have been had they repented and conformed themselves to Jesus' teaching? How different it could be for us if when we find ourselves where we're, we're ultimately following the tradition and the ways of others and it's out of line with Scripture, if we would just come and, and realign ourselves with God's Word rather than being comfortable in tradition. Imagine how it could have been if they would have celebrated the man who was restored. 
rather than dismissing it just to see a place where they could accuse Jesus because of the hardness of their heart. How often the case is true of us. We miss seeing what God is really up to because we're not excited about the way it's being done. See, the problem is the Pharisees didn't align themselves with God's word. They didn't celebrate the man who was restored. They solely wanted to celebrate their tradition and they wanted Jesus to align himself with their way. What about us? Are we getting angry at the right things? Do we celebrate the right things? When I say the right things, I'm referring to God's right things, his word, the things that he says we need to major in, the things that he says we need to be about, or are we off worrying about our customs and ways and traditions being upheld? There's an old pastor, I believe, that helps us in the application of this text. His name's J.C. Ryle. He says, what excessive importance the hypocrites attach to the trifles. Listen to that. What excessive importance the hypocrites attach to the trifles. The trifles, the things that really don't matter. It's the frosting. It's the things that that may seem like a big deal for us, but really are of no real importance. How excessive importance the hypocrites attach to the trifles. And church, I, I want you to think about that because we find it in the word must. We find it in the church. We find it in the communities we live in. We find it on the television and the news we watch. We must, we must, we must. We must align ourselves. You know, growing up, I remember, you know, and I've served in Christian schools, but I remember there being statements like, your children must go to Christian school. I remember later hearing, your children must be homeschooled. Or how about, your children must be involved in every activity, or you're a bad parent. You must, you must, you must. Or how about the reverse side? You must never. You must never go to movies. You must never dance. You must never fill in the blank. See, in and of themselves, these things can be good and beautiful and wonderful. But when we attach the word must, we've stepped outside the authority of Scripture. We must only do what God commands And friends, I remind you, it's always right, and it's always the right time to do the right thing in every situation. And if you want to know if you're doing the right thing, get in God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close our Bibles, as we step away from a text that reminds us that we must align ourselves with Scripture not the traditions of men. May our hearts be pure. May you make them pure. We know we're washed in the blood, and yet we know how how quickly our feet get dirty, like Peter, who needed his feet to be washed. Not his whole body, just his feet. Lord, that's us. Yet there's some in the room who maybe have never been washed. 
And they've been living in the traditions of religion, trying to earn their own way, and they're finding themselves under the weight of all this rules and all this legalism. God, I pray that they experience the freedom of Jesus. That they would know him to be the God-man, the Savior, the one who redeems, the one who gives perfect rest, and the one who calls us to live out the grace we ourselves have received. Lord, I pray that wherever we're at on that continuum, whether we've been walking with Jesus and our feet have gotten a little dirty on this issue, that we would repent and that we would realign ourselves and that we would do the right thing, we would celebrate the right things, that we would always understand it's the right time to do the right thing and we always would, we pursue that. Or Lord, if it's somebody for the first time is, is clicking that, man, I've been looking to the traditions of men for my salvation and hope and Lord, I pray that those who in the room are there would come to the realization that Jesus is the only hope. So God, we bow our heads, we bow our hearts, we bow all of what we have before you, King Jesus. Realign us, realign us, realign us. We pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.